Just maybe a little recap of the first few verses of chapter 7. Paul likens the old covenant to a marriage contract in which a woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's no longer under that law. So what, if, if you take this as a, a little bit of an allegory, I suppose, I'm, I'm looking at it, not just a parable. But if you look at this in terms of the covenant, who died? Jesus. The old covenant was done away with. Jesus. Jesus died, but, but how does that affect, was Jesus part of the old covenant, and now that he's dead, we don't have to do the old covenant anymore? It doesn't quite figure with our understanding of the Old Testament. How do we reason that? Can we review what the old covenant is? Well, the old covenant to Paul is the Sinai covenant. The Ten Commandments? Yeah, the Sinai, the Sinai covenant. The whole, actually all Torah, all the laws in Torah. The whole legal structure okay. of Torah excluding the original Abrahamic covenant and the Noah covenant. Those belong to the new covenant. I'm, I'm running through some things pretty fast. I'll try to back up and explain in a little bit. The old covenant is the covenant of all that the Lord has said we will do. We will keep it ourselves. And you see, that's where Abraham ended up going and his followers followed suit. And So we have this long, long uh, centuries and centuries of us trying to keep the law. Mm -hmm. So if Jesus died and he's the husband of the old covenant, so that the old covenant is not, how does that work? Mm. And maybe it can't. Maybe I'm making mm. too much of trying to make an allegory out of it. But it says, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law and she marries another man. She is not an adulteress. In the same way, my friends, and now here's the explanation. This is not Jesus dying. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. Now we die because he died. But it's we who die. And therefore the law, the, the old covenant no longer holds us in its grasp. We no longer keep the law ourselves on our own. We go forward to the new covenant, which takes us back to the Abrahamic covenant. And, and what is interesting is I've, I've done a thorough study of the covenants because I, I have applied my canonical critical understanding of the Bible in which the first voice or the voice tied to creation of, uh, that tells us what to do or tells us what, thing, what things are and how things function is God, usually God's preferred will. And then the people reject that voice and so... The next voice we hear, pretty soon we hear God speaking in the voice of the people and adapting to that. So, if you look at the covenant, covenantal language, uh, ancient Near Eastern term for, cutting, for making a covenant is to cut a covenant. That's, that's outside the Hebrew Bible. That's inside the Hebrew Bible. So, it's, it's, it's pretty much the ancient Near Eastern Semitic term. Uh, it means to cut a covenant. Why? Do, how would you cut a covenant? It was the cutting of the animals. It was the cutting of the animals mm -hmm. that cut the covenant. And what did that symbolize? There's an Assyrian covenant. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> that if you broke the covenant, then you would be cut like the animals? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. You may do to me like I've done to this animal if I do not keep the terms of the covenant. And that was it seems to have been fairly standard procedure. We don't have many texts outlining it, but we have a couple. One from Mari and uh, one from uh, Assyria. Where in the Assyrian one is very clear. Uh, as I have done to this animal, so you may do to me if I don't keep the terms of the covenant. Well, if you go to the Noah covenant, the term karat is not used. The term to establish is used. And there's no cutting. Now, it's true, Noah offers all these sacrifices, but God's response is not one of pleasure. It is one of, I will not again destroy the earth because man is sinful from his youth up. He still doesn't get it, that I don't like violence. So, what we have in the original covenant, if you use that as God's preferred will, is establishment of covenant irrespective of cutting. But you come to Abraham, and it doesn't even use the word establish. It doesn't even use the word covenant. There's no covenant in it, but it is clearly a covenant where he says, I am going to give you these offspring, and Abraham trusts God, and God considers that his righteousness. And that should have been the end of the story. But God moves on to the land, grant that he gives Abraham, that you're going to, I'm going to give you this land. And Abraham says, how do I know that I'm going to get it? <laughs> that's the end of his, that's, that's where his faith wavers. And so God says, okay, I'll speak your language. Ellen White and Patriarchs and Prophets says that God condescended to meet Abraham where he was and to speak his language. So he tells Abraham, get these animals and he doesn't tell Abraham what to do with them, but Abraham knows what to do with them. He takes them and he cuts them in pieces. And, and then God, in the symbol of a torch and as a, a container that holds fire, a censer, <laughs> uh, he passes through the body parts, taking on, you may cut me in pieces if I do not keep my term, the terms of this covenant. And, and I've had students very astutely in, in class come up to me afterwards. They're, not, they're too shy to say it in class. They come up to me afterwards and they say, um, isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? We let him down, but he still took on the covenant and its terms and died. And they're odd. They're awed by that because they recognize Jesus didn't deserve to die. He didn't, he, he didn't break the covenant. It was Israel who broke the covenant. In fact, Israel who transformed the covenant. Uh, because there's something interesting about the Sinai covenant. In Exodus, you don't have all of the forms of an ancient Near Eastern treaty. <laughs> Suzerain vassal treaty. Suzerain is an overlord. You don't have that kind of motif in the Sinai covenant. Sinai covenant could resemble a marriage covenant, a marriage mm -hmm. contract. I'm using covenant and contract synonymously because, unfortunately, in the minds of the people, it resembled a contract more. In the mind of God, it was a covenant. And uh, I'll, I'll take you on a little side note here, just for clarification. I showed once again for 
I don't know how many times I've shown this in a class. Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, uh, video on trust and trustworthiness. And he points out in that that, and of course, this is a rabbi speaking. He's a conservative rabbi, uh, but he's uh, the chief rabbi of United Kingdom. He points out that covenant is a relationship of trust, love and trust. It is not a contract. And that if we, we view the covenants in the Bible as contractual, we have undermined trust. And that's exactly what is going on with the Sinai Covenant. I think God's preferred will was to give them a marriage covenant, a relationship of trust. And this is how you live in a relationship of trust. You don't, you don't worship other gods before me because that will cut you off from love. You don't make an image of, of me because that will completely undermine who I am in terms of my love and, and my trustworthiness. You, don't, you won't take my name in vain. You won't break the Sabbath because the Sabbath encapsulates everything the covenant means. And you won't honor, dishonor your parents. You won't kill. You won't steal. You won't commit adultery and, and on and on. That's originally what he planned. In Deuteronomy, that covenant becomes another treaty. It becomes a completely legal structure. Uh, it loses all of its marital force. And so what the prophets do is take Israel back to what God originally planned in that covenant. Take them back to marriage. Jeremiah does it. Ezekiel does it. Hosea does it. I'm not so sure about Micah and Amos. But but the three biggies, the, Hosea being the oldest prophet, uh, the earliest one to write in the canon, Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesying before the fall of Jerusalem, they take Israel back to the fact that, why are you worshiping Asherah? Don't you know that you are Yahweh's wife? You're undercutting your own value and your own uh, position in God in, in Yahweh's kingdom by by dealing with that. So they try to bring them back, but the legal structure seems to hold sway. Doesn't seem to get taken care of with the captivity of Babylon. So Jeremiah posits the new covenant. Ezekiel posits the new covenant. And Jesus comes and fulfills the new covenant. And the new covenant is not one of law. It's not one of a legal, transactional, contractual relationship. It is one of trust and love. So that's lying behind what Paul's discussion is. This is, this is how he's reading the Old Testament to some degree. I've, I've tweaked it a little. And, and I didn't get this from Paul. I got this from reading the Old Testament. You know, and then suddenly realized, I'm reading this somewhat like Paul is reading it. Uh, and just never realized exactly how he was looking at it. How interesting that they call it a new covenant versus original covenant? Because, because, they, because Abraham and his descendants broke that covenant. And once you break a covenant, you need a new one. Okay. I think that may be the, okay. the reason. Because it sounds like the new covenant is, like you said, relationship and love, which is... It really is the old, than yeah. Law, 
it is, and it's 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 it is the old covenant, but because that's water under the bridge, mm -hmm. might as well start over. Okay. So, do you think the people at the time that he's speaking to and writing to, they had this kind of background, so they would have gotten it? I mean, I can see why we wouldn't this far down in the future if we haven't kept tuned in, but would they know what he's talking about? Or would they think more in terms of contracts and law? You know, it's, it's easy very quickly to lose what you have. Yeah. And then you don't understand what you had. I find that hum yeah, human nature is such that it's very hard to understand something you haven't experienced personally in your life. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't go back and father Abraham and experience. It's like trying to pass it on to your kids. You know, until they experience it, they don't get what you're trying to tell them. Mm -hmm. They might get a form of it, an exterior, exterior kind of it, but they're not going to get the internal. That is, I think, one of my biggest frustrations, if I can call it a frustration. Mm -hmm. Is that I can't I can I understand it because I've experienced it, but I can't transmit that experience. I can't give the foolish virgins my oil, so to speak. So I wanted to kind of recap that, and I know kind of we kind of went over it again because, and I think it, it undergirds what Paul's going to be saying uh, from here on. Gina, I just got one more question. Um, I understand what you're saying about this renewal of the Old Covenant or whatever. Has there been a time in history since Jesus died where there's been a need for a renewal of the New Covenant? Oh, yeah. 1888, <laughs> to give a most recent example. And probably the 1970s, to give another example. Why the 1970s? Excuse my ignorance. Um, well, I don't know if you've studied Adventism in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Extremely legalistic, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. extremely rule-based, extremely into cutting the covenant, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And in 1970, some major voices began speaking in different ways, mm -hmm. in different of having a relationship with Jesus. Morris Venon, for example, mm -hmm. who kind of spearheaded a revival that broke out among college students and even a cat and went down into the academies uh, around North America. And it was like a fresh breeze blew through the church so that we could actually begin talking about these things and, and understanding them a little more fully. Though I think at first we dimly understood them. So that's what I'm talking about. My own conversion experience happened in the crux of that revival. I was uh, 14 when that revival started. I would think every generation needs one. Mm -hmm. I do. I mean, really, we because it's always a different people, and, mm -hmm. and like you said earlier, you can't pass on an experience. Right. What I love about this generation is our generation learned to be tolerant of others. This group is appreciative of others. Mm -hmm. It's a huge difference. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think I th I think the uh, you know there's a lot of sighing and crying about the the millennials and even more about the generation that that's now freshmen here at PUC. Uh, <laughs> sorry, are you a freshman? No. <laughs> but um, 
and there are some things that distress a person, but those are individual things, not the collective group. And I, I think there's just a lot of of good things I see in um, the generation. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about the millennials since I've taught them more than I've taught the incoming generation. Uh, I enjoyed thoroughly the millennial generation. They they grasp what I told them a lot better than the generation previously, which I won't name. <laughs> uh, I um, I found them much more open and engaged and receptive than previous generations. And particularly the longer I was in the millennials, the more I got that way. They so were able to think outside the box a little better. So I, I have really enjoyed teaching that generation. And we have several in our midst <laughs> who I enjoy teaching very much. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, a, it's a real paradigm shift, and, and you got to live this. It's like, you know, our parents' generation is like, different, bad. You know, then our generation's pretty much been like, different, different. These guys are like, different? Wow, tell me more. You know, let me learn learn about it, you know. Yeah. And I, I think I think it's just precious, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um... If we can transmit not just the structure, the outline, the outline is maybe a better word. If we can somehow embrace the spirit ourselves enough that that spirit is catching. So that we're alive and our li- uh, the life that lives within us, and I know I'm, I'm sounding mystical, but I don't know how else to say it. Uh, the life that lives within us, which is the life of the Spirit, mm-hmm. can move from us to other people, like it did in Acts. Well, let's move on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, in the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. So we've died to that old covenant, so that you may belong to another, to Him, who raised, who have been raised from the dead. In other words, the God of the Old Covenant was our misconception of God. I would, I would like to put it that way rather than say he's the God of the Old Testament and Jesus is now our new husband. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we died to the old husband, the God of the Old Testament. <laughs> I don't like that at all. Uh, it's, it's our misconception of God that God had to cater to. He had to meet us where we are and speak a language we can understand. It's that that we die to and we raise to the God Jesus reveals which is how we should look through the, at the Old Testament through his lens that he left behind but now are we discharged from the law dead to that which held us captive so that we are slaves not under the old written code but in the new life of the spirit and here Paul is contrasting very sharply the life of the spirit with the old covenant well, I, I, the last two times I've talked about what happens when you try to keep the old covenant. Um, all the Lord has said we will do. And we'll not only keep it, but we'll enforce it. So if we catch you breaking it, we'll do something to you. <laughs> well, the weird thing is, God says I can do something to you. There's, you know, There are those verses of, well, if you caught an adultery, I get to stone you. I think that's kind of what they hung on to. I think they did. 
Jesus uh, takes that a different direction, yeah, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, you yeah. can stone her, but you have to be without sin first. Right. <laughs> yeah. How many of us are going to stone people with a, no, <laughs> that? No. And, the, and the truth is that God was in a very difficult situation with Israel. So, we, so when he tells them to stone an adulterer, I, I don't think he actually ever tells them to stone an adulterer in the Bible. Mainly because they would always pick the woman, even when the man was to blame. Right. Mm-hmm. But but he does tell he does have them stone Sabbath breakers and blasphemers, and there is the some law somewhere that does allow for stoning adulterers. So, what do we do with that? Mm-hmm. And that's where we have to contextualize the entire Old Testament. We have to be able to discern, according to definite criteria, what is God's preferred voice and what is his will adapted to the will of the people. And the will adapted to the will of people is always temporary. As soon as possible, he leads them back to the preferred voice. So, I put the whole old covenant in God's adaptive will. It's temporary. It's simply, but the people demanded. He had to meet. He had to, in order to hang on to them. He had to meet them where they were. Like let them have a king and stuff. Yeah, it's all the same. So, but now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive. So we are slaves, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Now we come to what we have for today. <laughs> Sorry, it takes so long to get there. Uh, what then should we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Mm-hmm. So he's he's anticipating the response, Oh yeah, Paul, you're telling us we're not under the law anymore. We're dead to the law. Well, then we can go sin, because why? Why is the reason they say, say that? Because we're such babies. <laughs> <laughs> what is their thinking on that? Laws. Um done away with it means like, we, we can sin if the law is done away with that's the only reason I'm keeping the law mm-hmm. is because the law says I can't and Paul is saying that doesn't cut it if you're really in the spirit you will keep the law because the spirit leads you to and because you see the good sense of the law And you don't have to be told to keep it Mm -hmm. in order to keep it. Mm -hmm. You know, I I don't think Satan is too alarmed by Adventists keeping the Sabbath because the law says so. Mm -hmm. I think he would be more alarmed if we kept the Sabbath because we we find joy in it, we find we find God in it, we find freedom in it, we find equality in it, we find all those things that the Sabbath represents in it, and we would keep it even if God said you don't have to. I think then he gets really worried because that's that's something that's unshakable. Merely keeping something because someone says to. Uh, I mean, what, what you think back when you're, you were children? Uh, Mom and Dad told us not to do something, and when their back was turned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's that's a great point. 
I used to challenge my friends um, that were Christian, um, but weren't Sabbatarians, um, not not to you know to try to convince them on the legitimacy of the seven day Sabbath, but to get them to take a twenty four hour period off and experience the blessing of the Sabbath. And I said, once you've done that, then we can talk about which day and all that stuff. But I said, you 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 got to you got to you got to have the blessing first to, to to understand why it's important and, and, and why it's so something to be cherished. And then eventually, you know, the problem is it's much more awkward keep, keeping Sunday than Sabbath for the reason that Sunday is historically embedded in legalism. Right. It's a day Christ rose from the dead, so it's a, not a day he rested, it's a day he worked. Mm-hmm. And, in, and I think in the structures that surround Sunday keeping, once Constantine became emperor, it became seen as more of a day of legislation than a day of, of relaxation and rest and focus on God. I don't, I don't think it had it. When, when Constantine had his first Sunday law, which allowed them to work if they needed to on Sunday, it was totally legal. Mm-hmm. So I, I really think that that it's easier to keep really keep Sabbath on Sabbath on, on the seventh day than it is to keep it on first. So let's let's move on. So because we're stopping and putting words in his mouth before we've heard his whole argument. What then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? For if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. What does that mean? <laughs> well, have you ever seen a sign on the wall that says, don't touch wet paint? I mean, what's the first thing you want to do? Touch. Touch. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. check to see, really, is it really wet? It doesn't look wet. Yeah. Um. That's right. If you go back to Romans five, twenty. Well, we're talking about how a deeper relationship is experiential versus a law. Is that just because we're made that way, and so we, we feel like we need to experience the, the paint to know that it's true? I mean, is, is that the flip side to that? Hmm. I mean, it's kind of weird to think about. I, I, I think it's more that, um, well, we need to go on. Apart, let's see. So apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. He looks back to work before his life of legalism and found he was more spiritually alive before the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died, and the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. In, to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. This is the time to say, Paul, would you please explain yourself a little better? <laughs> and, and maybe it's something we're missing. But if you look at 520, Romans 520. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abound, grace did much more abound. Let me read that from, to you from the Greek. But, the law, but law, this is not the law. This is not the Ten Commandments. This is actually the whole use of law. Historically, but law sneaked in. Mm. Mm. That's how you can translate the Greek. 
But law sneaked in with the result that the trespass multiplied. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so great might, grace might exercise dominion through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's, here's my take on it, and this may not be true to what Paul says. I plan to have a discussion with him on Romans <laughs> in the hereafter because I, there are many things, and, and, t- and studying the Greek sometimes only makes it harder. Pardon? As they get in line. <laughs> I know, I'll be at the end probably. But <laughs> I don't know where I'll be then. <laughs> Take a number. <laughs> Take a number and sit under the tree of life while you wait. <laughs> I'll be waiting a long time if you're at the end. Isn't it nice that uh, we won't have any pressures up there? Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to get somewhere, be somewhere, yeah. hurry up somewhere. <laughs> Anyway, here's my take. The law did not begin with Moses. A lot of people say, well, you go back to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and God says a command. And it's true. It says in the text, he commanded them, saying, you may eat freely of every tree in the garden, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat of it. And the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Thank you. That's the first command. So that's the first law. Well, now tell me, you parents, when Johnny toddles over towards the stove and starts to put his hand on the red hot burner, what what do you do? Don't touch, Johnny. Don't touch. And you probably lunge toward him because Johnny's too small to understand why you don't touch. Have you turned into a legislator now, barking out the law? Or are you merely uttering a warning? You're merely uttering a warning. That's the first law that God commands them. And the reason the, reason the text uses the word command is because the serpent questions, did God say? Well, he commanded it. Of course he said, you see. So the text makes it as strong as possible to make it that warning very clear. But that doesn't mean it's a law in the sense that we tend to think of law. So when did where did law begin? It began with royal decrees. Ancient Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. And it it became codified as kind of the the kind of jurisprudence that we have and I don't know if you've ever been to a library and seen those books, Corpus Jurisprudence. There's volumes and volumes of volumes of laws, some of which are dead. (laughs) We don't ever keep them anymore. That whole system of law began in Mesopotamia long before Moses. And the people uh, used them something like, well, the parallel set of laws were the omens. And the omens functioned very much like law. Because the omens were the verdicts that God sent into the entrails of sheep and into water mixed with oil and into the heavens and all the signs that the diviners read. So you have this whole system of law, this whole legal structure, 
And God stoops low to say, okay, I'm going to spell out what love and freedom look like. Here it is. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make a graven image. You shall not take my name in vain. You should remember the Sabbath day. You should honor your parents. He, he does that because he's trying so hard to convey. He says, you don't get what love is. Like, like the, my former student who lived on the street and said it was her Sunday school, Lutheran, her Lutheran Sunday school class that taught her the Ten Commandments that saved her from all the things in the street. Because if she hadn't been told these things were bad, she would have done them. She would have stolen. She would have shacked out with men. She would have uh, done all the things that street people can do. She said that it's wonderful to teach love, but love has to be experienced. And she had never experienced it. She was kicked out of her home at age 14. So if that's the case, the law is structure. And one of the ways I've, I've sought to look at this is bicycle riding. I was six years old when my father brought home a bicycle one Friday afternoon. And he said to me, oh, here's your new bike. You want to learn to ride? And I was a little bit nervous because I feared anything that moved. <laughs> I, have a st- I have major astigmatism. <laughs> and so moving things just get away from me very quickly. And um, so I was like, okay. <laughs> and we went out to the backyard where the lawn sloped. I got on the bike and Dad gave me a shove. <laughs> no. <laughs> my parents my parents didn't want training wheels because I would get too reliant on them. That's a, that was their theory. So no training wheels. And besides it saved them money. <laughs> we were pretty poor. So I take off and immediately I'm moving, right? So I freeze. I grab those handlebars and I close my eyes because I don't want to see where I'm going. And guess where I ended up? At the end of the sloping lawn was a row of rose bushes. Ended up in those rose bushes. <laughs> and of course, you can imagine what happened next. I let loose with great crying and sobs and thought my father was pretty mean <laughs> to send me on such a journey. And of course, my father and my brother were cracking up with laughter. <laughs> my mother tried to shush them and usher me into the house to bandage up my wounds. Which weren't serious, I can assure you. <laughs> so uh, that was the end of my lesson. It was Friday. We went, were going to learn to ride a bicycle on Sabbath. Thank the Lord for that. And, <laughs> and uh, on uh, Sunday morning, my dad says, you know, I don't have time to teach Jean to ride. So, Don, would you teach her to ride and take her to the front yard? And the front yard was surrounded by a hedge. So my brother takes me to the front steps leading to the house which had a sidewalk and he gives me a shove while I'm on the bike and once again I do exactly what I did on Friday I grab the handlebars and I close my eyes and I actually pull up my feet and the bike goes gliding toward the hedge and I'm expecting to get hurt I'm expecting to fall off the bike and, and skin myself or something and I end up suddenly sitting upright I stopped the wheel is stuck in the hedge. 
that wasn't so bad. So we start again <laughs> and again and again. And finally, my brother watches me closely because he can't figure out why I'm not doing, you know, not learning to ride. And he sees me with my eyes closed and my <laughs> feet up in the air. <laughs> and he says, how come you keep your eyes closed when you're riding? How can you learn to ride a bike that way? So I had to open my eyes. I learned to ride. Mm -hmm. Thanks to the hedge. Now the law can be seen as a hedge of helpful stopping agency, or it can be seen as a bed of roses with thorns, Mm -hmm. depending on how we look at it. It's meant to be, and and, uh, I... I'm sorry, I have to jump ahead and let Paul interpret Paul, but if you go to Galatians, chapter 3, I believe it is, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. It wasn't added because of God's sovereign will. It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring, who's the offspring? We are. No? Christ. Christ. Uh, Until the offspring would come to whom the promise has been made, and it was ordained through angels by a mediator. Now the the mediator involves more than one party, but God is one. Um, And now I'm going to jump down to 23. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Hmm. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. Basically, it's an emergency measure to keep us alive <laughs> until we can meet Christ. It does not, it is a means to an end. It is not the end itself. Here it uses protective custody. Well, yeah. well and I, I, th- I think we have to be careful to, to make sure that just because something is legal doesn't mean it's moral. Because look at this country. Because of manifest destiny. Yeah. Native Americans were deprived of their land through legal means. Mm-hmm. That's a good example. You, you know, um, for first eight years of, of this country, we, 15% of our population was enslaved and had a marginal well, life it, for many it, generations it, after. And more than that, the problem is that if you take the law in, as the law of faith, there's no legal laws command us to love the immigrant. Right. No legal law. I mean, the, the, the Torah does. But you can argue that those laws that command certain things that don't have a penalty attached are not legal. Mm. They're moral. Um, and I, when I teach Introduction to Christian Ethics, we do a day of what is legal and what is moral. And, is, and there can be overlap. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, and I think it's great. I mean, it was hard for us to fathom it. But, like, it's, it's only been about 100 years since women could vote in this country. Right. I mean... So, you know, there's all kinds of ways that the law has been perverted, and we're supposed to be a free nation. You know, and, and so I, I tell a story in this class of a situation I witnessed in, a, in the eye care center of Napa. I was in there getting glasses. And uh, a lady was trying on multiple frames. I mean, she had frames all over the desk, and, and she was trying on this frame and that frame, and she decided she didn't like any of them, and so the person serving her decided to go get some more frames, and she got waylaid by a woman in, who was quite urgent. She said, uh, my husband is waiting out in the car and needs to know if his glasses have come. And so she said, okay, let me 
let me check. And so she goes to check, and of course she leaves this other woman waiting and waiting and waiting. And uh, she comes back and tells the lady, yes, your gla- husband's glasses are come. Uh, you can go ahead and get him from the car. And because the issue was she, her husband couldn't come in until he knew those glasses were ready. Well, the woman who had to wait on this whole procedure was very upset. And she started belittling this couple with it. Mm. And, of course, he had to wait in the car. And, and she was going on and on like this. And finally, the man comes in, obviously had a stroke, and was barely able to walk. Mm. And everything went silent <laughs> next door. But I t- asked my students, okay, so is there a law against her doing that? Her being critical and being unkind and, and all of that. Is there a law against it? The law of the Spirit is against it. Mm-hmm. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, graciousness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Why? It's not legal. It's moral, it's spiritual, but it's not legal. So, so you're absolutely right. The law is sort of like God saying, don't jump off the cliff because I want you to be alive to have a relationship with me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and but what happens with the law is that we often view it like a bed of roses. And so it calls out for some kind of rebellion. Oh, you tell me not to do it, I will do it. It's, it's sort of that tendency mm-hmm. to rebel against what we're told not to do. Mm-hmm. Why? Because once you turn into a commandant general, instead of a loving friend, you change the relationship, don't you? The nature of the relationship changes. And I don't feel as comfortable with you. I, I sometimes ask my students, okay, so um, what kind of relationship would you have in the courthouse with a judge? I can tell you what kind of relationship I had with a judge one time. I was trying to get out of jury duty. And uh, the class that I was to teach that afternoon, we were supposed to start at noon to have our jury session. Uh, the class that I was supposed to teach was a discussion class. It was an ethics class. And it lasted from 2 o'clock to 3.15. And I couldn't just grab a substitute and say, go teach my class. So I was trying to get out of it. And I can tell you it was not a very friendly conversation (laughs) I had with the judge. He was determined to talk me out of it and talk me into staying. And uh, so he finally asked me, well... I, I, he said, can't you find a substitute? And I said, no, on the college level, you can't find just find a substitute. Well, um, what do you do when you're sick? I said, I teach. So everything went silent at that point, and he ended up kicking me off the jury. <laughs> I ended up being the last person. And it, I, I think God orchestrated it, not the judge, but I ended up being the last person. Uh, they had one more, and I was it, so I got to go. But I didn't have a nice, trusting relationship with that judge, did I? And you see, that's the problem. Once God has to thunder from Sinai, his relationship with his people changes. But it already had changed, and that was the reason why he had to thunder from Sinai. Did what is good then bring death to me? 
By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. We just talked about earlier our problem with not being able to pass on our experience with Christ. That's what Paul's addressing here. We need the law because we can't grasp the experience. We needed the law, and the law, and we needed to have that, well, how should I put this? We needed the law, and, we, and the law calls out this tendency to rebel, and that in turn reveals to us in the end how bad sin is. Because we have the law saying, this is wrong. It is wrong to hit your brother. It is wrong to kill somebody. It is wrong to steal from someone. It is wrong to lie to someone. And we begin to then have a sensitivity to, oh, I've really done someone wrong. That's what the law, the how the law is good. And I'm tempted to go on, but our time is up. So we're not capable of seeing our own self without that mirror. Exactly. We're just incapable. Right. Because I, I think of how my mother tried to teach my brother and me to love each other. <laughs> she had a tough job on her hands because I was the natural victim of his torment. <laughs> but I, I allowed that torment because I was such a victim. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I could always whine to my mother about what he was doing to me, and she could always clobber him. <laughs> so my poor brother got felt like a victim, too. And there we were. She finally got wise and told me one day to ignore what he was doing, because what he wanted was a rise. He, he was just trying to be fun, and he thought it was funny to tickle me and, and harass me and... <laughs> and torment me. Um, but uh, I didn't see it that way at all. I was all mysterious, and he was all fun and games. So we collided royally. And, of course, he was four years older than I. <laughs> so <laughs> that put both of us at a disadvantage, I think. Uh, so I did ignore, and that changed our relationship. It, I can't say it made it better. you know. Um, but it, in a t- way, it did temporarily. He actually started trying to play with me instead of uh, <laughs> teasing me all the time. <laughs> so I really think that we have to be told first. That doesn't give us the relationship of trust. That only puts a boundary out there so that we're not as likely to stub over our toe and get badly hurt even though we might keep the law for all the wrong reasons. We still need it. But we're not under that. And once we have the life of faith with Christ, once we have that relationship of trust, once we embrace His love and love other people, we no longer need something to tell us, do this, do that, do the other thing. Or don't do that. We don't need it. I think that's what Paul is trying to get his 
hearers to see. Because let's face it, what was it that led the Jews to crucify Christ? He wasn't following their laws. He wasn't following their laws. It was legalism. It was being under the law that led them to crucify Jesus. And that means that if we get trapped in the law as the means, as not the means to an end, but the end is being Christ, if we get trapped in the law as the end itself, we will crucify him afresh by the way we treat others or mistreat others. Any thoughts? It's time to go. Let's pray. Gracious Father, perhaps one of the reasons we find Paul difficult is because we struggle with something that has caused us pain and suffering because of the way we've abused it. And that is the law. And because, on the other hand, once we've lived the life of freedom of trust, we don't even think about what the law says we have to do because the law is in our hearts. And therefore the law seems, the, the codification of the law, the, the strictures and structures of a contractual relationship seem to be not at all what you intended. And truly they're not. But it's hard for us to see and understand these things. So we pray for a special measure of your spirit to open our minds and to see this as clearly as we possibly can, because our only safety is in doing so. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.